Hi, this is Teemu Arena. Today I have Wade Lightheart with me. He wrote absolutely interesting book together with Matt Gallant, The Ultimate Nutrition Bible. I can't wait to dive into it. So thank you so much, Wade, for joining the show. Great to be here. Great to connect again. It's been a while. So I'm happy to talk about some of the topics we're covering in this Bible that we've put together. Amazing. Wade is also speaking in Biker Summit in Amsterdam, 14 and 15 of October. If anyone listening has been on the edge of the seat to get tickets, I would recommend to get them right now because this one is going to sell out. The demand for our Amsterdam event has been absolutely huge. The topic is expanding consciousness in all these different modalities. Humans have pushed the boundaries of their own consciousness through different techniques, anything like from fasting to heat alteration, drumming and music and connection to nature, plant medicines, obviously, and different molecules, fasting, meditation, all of that goes into it. We evolve through pushing the boundaries of our comfort zones in different ways. And nutrition, definitely something that changes your mind. Absolutely. I experienced that through my own dietary changes and we are not just what we eat. It is also what the bacteria in our guts are eating and all the neurotransmitters, those critters are helping to build. And in the end, there is a lot of studies that also show now the connection between mental health and gut health. And why I really like to talk to you, Wade, today is because you have a little bit more sophisticated understanding of nutrition. In your new book, you are diving into not just like ultimate formulas for quick gains, but you are looking at the limitation of different dietary paradigms and also long-term dietary choices that lead to success. So I can't wait to unravel and unpack this whole thing. And you have this concept of pyramid of nutritional decisions we're also going to touch base with. And to my listeners, that's not the food pyramid that you were maybe used to. So can't wait to hear more. So you are representing Bioptimizers, which is your company of excellent nutritional products. I've been using those for now a decade. And some of the best gut health products, for example, are made by Bioptimizers. And I'm very happy to recommend those. Also, one of my favorite ones is the Magnesium Breakthrough, I think it's called, which is optimal formulation of different forms of magnesium. But weight is absolute treasure trove when it comes to nutritional knowledge and understandings. If you maybe fill in what's going on in your life right now, you're publishing a book and optimizers, obviously it's a big thing, but is there anything else you want to share? Sure. Oh, we're really excited about the book. I always, Matt and I laugh. Matt, of course, is an advocate of the ketogenic diet. I'm a plant-based guy. He's been ketogenic for, I think, almost 30 years. And I've been plant-based for almost, uh, I guess, it's working on 22, 23. And I was an all-natural bodybuilding champion. Actually, last year, made a comeback and competed at the Grand Masters at the Natural Olympia. And then six months later, ran a marathon. And Matt's kind of broken all records in neurofeedback, in cognitive development. And one of the things that's odd, a lot of people say, how do you guys get along considering you have such different dietary philosophies? And we actually, although the expression of what works for us, there's a series of overarching principles that transcend the kind of the dogmatic cult-like beliefs that permeate the industry. And so through conversation and dialogue, and I would say sometimes some heated arguments over the last 20 years, Matt and I were able to work out the nuances. And we've been around the game long enough. We both started when we were teenagers, is that we see the rise and fall of dietary strategies throughout the year. They become recycled and renamed with a little tweak here and a another attractive celebrity-minded person or someone well-financed or well-backed. And, and what happens is people get enamored with it because we now suffer the diseases of civilization. And that is, for most of human history, having sufficient amount of food was a major problem. And there's still large segments of the population that suffer from that condition. So evolutionary-wise, we as humans develop two particular tendencies. One is not to build an excessive muscle mass, which is interesting enough, a very big contributor to quality of life on a long term, and to build as much excess body fat in case of a starvation cycle, which has permeated human history. 
Now, since we have a massive advance of civilization and technology, we have an excess of calories in the biological systems that we have, the efficient biological systems, which are inside our human biology, have transferred into the production of technology, which has reduced our physical activity and that we now have the diseases of I call civilization. So we're so good at the efficiency part that we've actually become detrimental to our life. Now, I got started in the bodybuilding world. Now, the bodybuilding world, I believe, is the first or the original biohackers because they're trying to overcome two of those evolutionary tendencies, which is they want to build an excessive amount of muscle mass and they want to reduce their body fat to, in many cases, an unhealthy level. Of, it's a cosmetic sport. But through that process, they developed a lot of the techniques which now are commonplace or the thinking processes commonplace that permeated biohacking. And that extended now to cognitive development or longevity, anti-aging. All of these things originated out of that space. And so both Matt and I had a, a long time background and we were excited and interested in about how could we use technology in a positive way. Now, of course, Early on in our relationship, we experimented with others' diets. He had found success in this ketogenic diet. I had found success on this plant-based diet. And we were paralyzed, I would say, by the paradigms or advocacy of that. And you can go online and you see all these arguments about the carnivores are against the plants and the paleo guys are against the if it fits your macros. Vegans. Yeah, it becomes a tribalistic mosh pit. And our brains, if you weren't part of a tribe you lose your security and you're always raiding within the hierarchy of that tribe. It's a subconscious drive. So you want to find a leader and rise up the relevancy in that tribal metabolism. And we see this playing out online all the time because it's an ancient mechanism. And that ancient mechanism isn't serving us very well as humanity with a, a much more globally connected population. And so what happens, and this is something that almost no dietary expert is willing to admit, Body fat loss is the major goal of most dietary strategies because we're suffering from an excess of body fat as populations around the world. So obesity is like one of the metrics. If we look at, for example, Europe, we have about 60% people basically overweight. And depending on country, around 30% are even obese. From a BMI standpoint, they're in a massive risk group. Most of the people are basically just overfed, then obviously fat loss is the primary target for reducing a lot of the risk parameters. But I guess once you are there, then starts the tribal wars also of which diet is the best, not just for weight loss, but also for health. They're not the same either. Yeah. So in the Barker's Handbook, we spoke about quality of ingredients, things like nutrient density. You can apply the same logic on a plant-based diet or on a carnivore diet. On a carnivore diet, you would go for the organ meats and you would eat the whole animal. And in plant-based diets, you have to start looking more carefully where your nutrients are coming from and that you have a diverse number of different plants. And uh, then you have, of course, the mix of both. But to me, it feels like a lot of experts who are either, let's say, carnivore or keto or even vegan, they have a pretty narrow selection of food items. So it might be just avocado and kale and steak. One of the funniest thing about veganism, which is more related to the ethical side of it, is that then everything becomes monoculture or monocrops. So you have either like corn in different forms utilized over and over again, or you have soy utilized in all different kind of forms over and over again. And the latest fat is oats. So you have oat milk and you have oatmeal, and then you have some kind of meat replacement made out of oats. So you end up eating the same food item. And from a nutritional standpoint, that's not like increasing the nutrient. It's not even nutrient density, but it's more like you're narrowing down the food items that you're taking in. And each group has like their own problems, but I see a lot of the issues come also from the lack of diversity. So if you're a carnivore, you're just eating too many muscle meats, and you're not having enough, let's say, glycine from connective tissues or certain vitamins that you only get in good amounts in organs and or certain minerals like zinc and selenium and so on. Arguably, animals who graze 
they concentrate all the nutrients in the flesh and when you eat that flesh, it's a quite an effective way. But then if you are eating for longevity, then activation of mTOR or growth hormone and all of this, which in short term perspective might be great for muscle growth, can be also cancer promoting. And then there's all these phytochemicals that could protect you from things like this. So the way I see dietary choices is quite dogmatic. And one thing that is maybe good to also point out the seasonality. So people tend to eat the same thing over and over again. And that's the bodybuilding thing, like having the same freaking chicken over and over again, instead of eating seasonally and cycling things in and out. And there's many reasons for that. For example, that you don't become sensitized. You don't develop food sensitivities by eating the same thing over and over again. But also nutritionally, you might be getting something too much and something too little. And I think there is like something that is innate, how our ancestors were eating. And then you have the paleo people are, yeah, like we just should eat like our ancestors did and be as much in tune with what is natural. And I appreciate that. And a lot of natural is not necessarily always healthy. So some food processing in some cases makes a lot of sense, just like activating lycopene in tomatoes, but then you don't definitely don't want to overcook your greens as an example. So there's, unless it's the latest thing is oxalates with kale and all these things that are over, over consumed. But if you process them, oxalates is not a problem as an example, but then our Aboriginal or indigenous colleagues, they, and friends, they had the gut bacteria to break down oxalates. And now there's biohackers looking for stool transplants or something like this to reintroduce the bacteria they lack or probiotics as well. Just to give an overview of the conversation and the limitations of these things. But every time I post like myself doing like a wild salad, the comment section is full of carnivores telling that plants will kill me. And every time I post a picture of a steak, there's vegans telling their how meat is going to kill me. And I think a lot of nutrition is driven by fear. And a lot of these people also are into different dietary things. Maybe they fix their own health issues with a certain diet and they became fixated to that because they have this emotional connection now to it. This is the only way, this is the only approach to health because it's worked for me. So maybe you can expand from here. And you speak about limitations of dietary paradigms. So maybe you can elaborate from here a little bit more to give people a bit more of a wider perspective. Yeah. So we'll start with the original concept. So if you look at the whole weight loss industry, which dominates a lot of the dietary strategies in the first part, we're, I would say the biohacking community is much more sophisticated, but we need to start at base camp and then move our way through it. 97% of the people who follow a weight loss strategy will end up gaining the weight. So the iteration of that is all diets will work for a while. In other words, you may engage in a variety of different ty- different dietary styles and the adaptive response oftentimes will produce results. If it, in the case of weight loss is, are you uh, in a sufficient calorie deficit? And is that deficit optimal? Like, okay, you could just stop eating. You'll lose lots of weight. You could take methylphetamines and lose tremendous amounts of weight, or you could be on a drug use. You, you lose weight, but your, the acceleration and degeneration of your health could be very well. You can follow, you look at a bodybuilding contest, for example. The worst bodybuilder on any contest amateur stage is in better condition than the general public from a body fat, lean muscle tissue ratio, but they may not be healthier. All of them know how to lose the weight because they've mastered maintaining muscle mass through exercise and creating a calorie deficit and supporting the muscle mass while exhausting the body fat. But like myself, I ran into digestive health issues after I competed in the Mr. Universe because my diet was so rigid and dysfunctional on if it fits your macros type of concept is that I destroyed my microbiome. Good thing about that because we ended up starting a company to figure that out. But then for example, if you're applying a ketogenic diet and you have suboptimal lipolytic pathways, okay, so you're doing very well for a while, but now you start running into gallbladder issues or uh, processing trans fatty acids. There might be some fats that you process, some fats that you don't. There's a whole variety of issues. When I attempted doing a ketogenic diet years ago, 
I would get fat in the stools. This was before genetic testing. Genetic testing came along and it turns out that I have suboptimal fat metabolism in my body. I evolved from a meat-eating bodybuilding diet. I tried a ketogenic diet. I tried a, a more paleocentric diet. Then I moved to a vegan diet. And then I moved to a raw food diet. In each one of those diets, I learned certain aspects or advantages of that diet. And I also discovered disadvantages over the years. So Matt had a similar experience when he started experimenting and eventually landed on the ketogenic diet, which is more supportive for him. And he really likes it from a cognitive health perspective. And he's made some adaptations within that to fit his genetics. Now with genetic testing, we can accelerate the predictive models of where someone's going to run troubles. For example, I'll, I'll use my own case. If you're running a genetic test, I have suboptimal genetics for cardiovascular health. And so the likelihood, and then I also have suboptimal genetics for blood sugar regulation. So for losing weight, a more animal-based, or if it fits your macro diet, is very effective for me to lose weight very quickly or get into really good condition. The problem is with that from a longevity, which is where I'm more interested now, is the likelihood that I would develop some cardiovascular conditions from the animal fats in my 70s or 80s is very high. So I adapted a plant-based model, which is very good from a cardiovascular perspective. I supplement with an algae-based essential fatty acid because I don't have enough essential fatty acids. I eat a very natural-based diet on a plant-based. But I also have to supplement to keep my protein content high because if my protein content drops below a, a certain level, my tendency is to overeat carbohydrates and that dysregulates my blood sugar. So a lot of plant-based people end up in trouble later on, either the loss of muscle mass or diabetic conditions. A lot of animal-based people may run into cardiovascular health or plaque or things like that. So it's not to say that there's anything wrong with any of those diets. It's that eventually, if you're stuck in the dogma, you are going to expose that and you may end up with a health crisis. And then some people will jump into another diet again and fall, oh, now I have to go completely off meat. I'm wrong. I got to go to a raw food diet or I got to be a fruitarian or vice versa. I was a vegetarian for 20 years and I developed anemia and I had this problem. Now I'm eating carnivore. No, you're just offsetting with the limitations. And of course, we have methylation and all this stuff. Interestingly, if we take these two layman terms, most people will do well on any diet for the first few years because most likely what they're cutting out is all the processed, oxidized, just crap that they've been eating. So when you go to any of these diets seriously and you start following what might be the gold standard to do that, you're most likely observing the benefits of cutting off things that cause slow recovery and increased inflammation and all of that, and maybe even a retention of water and all of that from alcohol and so on. So when people get on diets, they often cut out all the crap, and then they experience great effects. And if you take, for example, ketogenic diet, women might feel really good for a while, and then they get hormonal issues. Someone on a vegan diet might feel absolutely elevated and then they get neurological problems or they get joint problems or skin issues or whatever. Most people do well for a few years and that is the period in which they start to, the belief system develops that this is the only perfect diet. And once they see the health issues coming along, they still hang on it. Like they can't let go. And that's where the testing comes into play. So you spoke about genetic testing, which is bit more advanced to figure these things out. But even doing routine biomarkers in terms of blood work to figure out, let's say, the cholesterol issue that you spoke about. I just came back from London. We did the Biker Summit event there, and I met this guy, Miles Irving, and he wrote the Forager's Handbook. So he's the guy who reintroduced wild plants into restaurants in, in culinary kitchens. And so he's been foraging like a few decades now, but he decided to try now for six months that he's only eating wild food. So he used to eat also meat and stuff like this with the wild herbs. But now he was six months just on wild herbs. And so 
basically nothing you can buy from a supermarket he was eating. And he took blood work before and after. And lo and behold, like his cardiovascular parameters like just cleared out. Like it just became perfect in six months. And so I think people learn by also changing their patterns, but you have to do testing so that it's not up to believe. So can you maybe speak a little bit about that when it comes to doing the right biomarkers and testing? Yeah, I think just come out of the gate. I think if longevity is a person's ultimate goal, you want to address what are the things that take people out? So I would say first and foremost, an easy one is a DEXA scan. Because we know that an imbalance of muscle mass to fat ratio over time is one of the biggest detriments for every health risk going. Pulse test, which is a protein folding test to test heart disease. Uh, Homo IR test, which is a blood sugar and insulin response. Or you can do a continuous glucose monitor if you want to go down that road. Which is, in many ways, even more revealing because the variance between individual response to foods is significant. Some people get a massive insulin spike from a cup of coffee and some people experience nothing. And that's with nothing in it. So the, the variance is quite significant on that. You can do a spectra cell test, which will determine how well your body is absorbing the vitamins and minerals and what ones you may be deficient on. A Dutch test, which is a hormone test, and a good uh, microbiome test, like uh, any of the various gut tests. And their different practitioners are going to fall into tests that they prefer or not. You can experiment with different ones and get an idea. Those that you can do maybe once, but those tests, you do it once, maybe every five years. And that's going to tell you, okay, I've got a, a red alert for cardiovascular disease or insulin dysregulation, or I've got a major nutrient deficiency that could you know, have problems, or I've got a missing bacteria, which can cause neurological conditions or whatever. So those are standards. And a genetic test, what's great about a genetic test is this is also not intuitive. You think, oh, you know, my ancestors came from Northern Europe. I'm going to do good on eating fish and wild venison or something. You might find out that your you, what you think is your genetics isn't really your genetics. And almost everybody I know go, I can't believe I have this genetic patterns. And inside of that, if you have someone that can look at that efficiently, we have a chapter, a couple chapters in the back that kind of goes through some of the more common aspects of genetics so that you can look at ways of offsetting suboptimal genetics. And that's essentially the big thing is you want to offset your suboptimal pieces. So what happens is oftentimes, invariably, people will take a, they'll get into a dietary tribe or program. And it does, it, it works for a period of time because it addresses those, some of the suboptimal things, but it may expose other suboptimal things. And eventually you come to this, you've gained all the value out of that. And then you're going to start running into the detriments of it. If you're testing and you remain flexible and open to other concepts or other dietary ideas, your diet becomes much more sophisticated and you're less likely to fall prey to paradigm blindness. Now, there's another piece that emerges, and I always look at when I am evaluating the success of somebody over the long term, you look at, okay, what is your goal? What is your, what's diet right for you? What diet's right for you right now? And what diet's right for you long term? For example, when I'm getting ready for a bodybuilding contest, which I did this last year, there's a suboptimal aspects of that diet because I'm maintaining calorie restriction and an excessive amount of exercise for an extended period of time to reach a certain cosmetic look. Once that goal is achieved, I switched from weight training and went to endurance running. Okay. So I went from the Mr. Olympia side. Of, I've never run a marathon before. Or what if I adjust my dietary strategies and my training strategies? To go do a marathon. Six months later, I successfully ran a marathon. Now, both of those had constraints that were suboptimal, but they were what I wanted to do at that particular time. And then as soon as I finished the run, then I moved back to a more longevity type mindset of how I, okay, I've taken some damage from the runs. I've taken some damage from the bodybuilding to create this physical goal. Now I want to offset that damage, use some of the biohacks like I'm here in Sedona doing some NAD treatments, or I'm going to do some V cells. Very excited about that. And some peptides for cognitive health. Yeah, it's profound what you're speaking about. So what kind of takeaway for anyone listening about this is that you have to become an expert of your own dietary needs and requirements. No one else is going to be 
as big of an expert or as interested in your nutrition as you are. And there's all these genetic individual differences and what Wade is speaking about. What is your goal this year? Do you want to run a marathon? Do you want to be a Mr. Olympia? I think you pick up like pretty hardcore goals to compete in, but like most people, they may just, they have a big project coming up. They just want to perform really well cognitively. Maybe the ketogenic diet, one meal a day, something like this might work for you. Personally, I use a cyclical ketogenic diet that seems to work for me great when I'm doing knowledge work, but I don't have like excess energy requirements for exercise, for example. So I do just fine with one meal a day strategy for a while. I know people who do very hard workouts combining that, like Seamland is well known for doing that for a decade now. But like everyone needs to assess their needs and making sure that whatever you're doing, you're not damaging yourself long-term. And so, so what you're speaking about also aging, like you are, how old are you now? 51 now. So you're 51 now, I'm 41 now. So these are the, like when you're in your 30s, 20s, like you get away with a lot of stuff. But once you get into your 40s, 50s, 60s, you have to start thinking about things like testosterone. You have to start thinking about things like recovery and cardiovascular parameters and all these things. So that's where it has the biggest leverage to increase your awareness. And that's where all the testing is so much more important that you're doing the right thing for longevity. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. But I can't wait to get into the pyramid of nutritional decisions. Let's just dive into it right away. Yeah. So we looked at some of the things that will take people out and ultimately what will allow them to have success over the long term. And this is a study like Matt and I have literally coached in excess of 10,000 people each. And so we try to create a set of concepts to think about long-term when deciding what diet's right for you right now or in the future. So at the bottom of the pyramid, we have spiritual and cultural commitments. So why is that important? I have friends, some, one of my closest friends, he's from a Hindu family, and they're very rigid socially about not eating any meat. It's very rigid. And there's the social pressure or spiritual values often put suboptimal pressures on them that maybe they would be beneficial if they had some animal proteins or had other options available to them. But the spiritual and cultural commitments to their culture, to their social structure, it's overwhelming. So they have to work within that limitation and find ways to optimize within that limitation or within that expression because that's most important to them. We're all going to die. So yes, it's maybe a suboptimal for that person, but they said, this is the way my family is. This is the way my culture is. This is my spiritual values or whatever. Fine. That's fine. Or maybe I have a lot of people who work in my company who are Muslim and every year they go for an extensive fast, fasting and so there's beautiful culture. I was in Bosnia at our lab and they were in the middle of Ramadan. When I came to visit the lab where we develop microbes and engineer them and see what they produce in our body and stuff. And I got to experience that. And it was really nice that they fast all day long and we have this big celebratory meal and I was exposed to all these different types of food I had never had before. And it was lovely. And I really enjoyed the, the social structure that was around and the commitment to their spiritual beliefs and why that's important to them. And then the camaraderie that would happen after they fasted all day and have their, their meals. But that might be suboptimal if you're like, I remember when Habib Nurmagomedov was fighting in UFC, he wouldn't fight during this time. A lot of the Islamic guys won't fight during Ramadan because they're only eating one meal a day. And if you're going to get in the UFC cage, if someone is trying to kill you, that might not be optimal. So then the next stains, this is, in these two, we call the foundational components of our keys to sustainability is emotional and psychological needs. So I'll use an example of Matt and myself. I'm very good at staying on an extremely rigid diet for an extended period of time if I have a goal in mind. And I don't need, in fact, I, I don't want to go off my diet for any reason. I don't want to have any of the forbidden foods, let's just say, during that diet at all. It's no problem. I just don't do it. If Matt does that, he feels uh, restricted. It, it's not good for his psychology or emotionally. So he builds in refeeds on a week-to-week -week basis on his ketogenic diet. Like a cheat day? Yes. Yeah. We, I don't like to use the word cheat. We call it refeeds 
or a spike day or those type of things. So he'll set a diet where he goes a little bit more restrictive for maybe four or five days, six days of the week. And he has one day where he'll spike up over the week. He's in the, say a calorie deficit, but that one day he gets to fill his emotional and psychological needs that he doesn't feel too restrictive. And if he doesn't build those in, he's not able to maintain the optimal dietary strategy for himself. One thing that I want to add is that when people get on diets or they think of diets, they often think of restriction, that I can't do something. Yes. But what I've noticed about getting on diets, which are actually expanding your palate often, like you, you suddenly are eating things that you never ate before because your plate was full of rice and potatoes and wheat, and now you have all these things that you didn't consume before. So now you actually allow psychologically yourself to eat all these things that you just didn't have the calorie budget to eat for because it was like full of all kinds of other things. So that can be also like one way to deal with that is that you start to enjoy new flavors, like maybe bitter taste or savory taste or something completely different than what you were used to. Exactly. Like uh, I experienced that when I went to Bosnia, I wouldn't eat anything because I wanted to engage in the cultural practice. And then at nighttime, they introduced me to a whole bunch of foods that I never had before. And this was awesome. I really enjoyed my time. And probably for my microbiome diversity, that was really positive. Some of the fermented foods and stuff I was introduced, I was like, wow, I tasted it. And I could feel that my body was really enjoying this particular food. So the thing that happens a lot of times inside of when you get in a dietary paradigm is you start developing uh, negative psychology or emotional guilt. If I eat something that's not right, oh, I'm not a good person or the secret, oh, I'm a ketogenic guy, but I went and had a chocolate bar the other day and now I have this hidden aspect of my psychology that I want to thing and then I become overtly trying to protect my... You have to be very careful about the emotional, psychological needs and to recognize the healthier one becomes, usually, and you touched on this, it gives you a bigger range of potential options, not a less like. I think in certain areas, a restriction will get you to a certain point and there's benefits to it. But at, when that bottoms out in its value, that's when you want to start sequentially expanding the palate and expanding the options available to you. And then the healthier you are, the more readily available that you can expose yourself to other foods, other things that may be missing. And I think at the highest level, and you've probably what I've noticed with most biohackers or people who have been very sophisticated in the diet has, you become almost drawn to different things intuitively. Yeah, superfoods is a good example. Like all those supplements people are putting in their coffee. Like I had today, I had uh, reindeer bone broth, BZM95 curcumin, beef testicles in my coffee. Amazing. Probably very different from whatever like people are usually having as a cup of coffee, but like you start to experiment with things, like you get into smoothies, you get into protein shakes, you, you change things. And then suddenly those things are in your salad dressing. So I put spirulina in my salad dressings as an example. Now I started doing matcha lattes with spermidin. I found it yes. works perfect there. Sometimes I throw in my NAD supplements in my beverages. So there's a lot more diversity going on there because you suddenly your eyes are open that, hey, why not? I can like experiment with things in a way that breaks also the traditional schools of cooking, also what is supposed to be on a plate. Yeah, exactly. And so those are the two foundational things that will ultimately lead you to long-term success or derail you if you do not fulfill your emotional, psychological needs or your spiritual and cultural commitments because environment is stronger than will. Now we go into direction which is what is the goal that I'm trying to achieve? So the goal to say lose excess body fat is not necessarily the same goal as athletic dominance, or it's not the same goal as a cognitive performance, or maybe from a longevity perspective. Okay. So understand we've broken down through five major goals that you can go through, and this will set you the direction of what the duration till you achieve that goal. And then you say, okay, I can achieve that. Maybe I'm going to go on to something else. And this is what makes it the process renewable and fun. And the, hey, can I do this? For example, I, like, I thought it was a radical idea. I didn't run since I was a teenager. Bodybuilders don't run. I thought, okay, what would happen if I became an endurance athlete? 
let's go find out. And I experimented with that and there is some challenges within it, but I learned some things. Then up there, we go into what I would say, what would optimize your diet? So there's several levels to that. There's five levels to it. Your calories and macros are the foundation of that. Am I getting sufficient amount of protein, carbohydrates, fats, essential fat acids, all that sort of stuff. That And right for my metabolism that I'm not gaining an excess amount of body fat and or that I'm deficient so much that I'm losing key elements to my body, lean body mass or damaging my organs. Nutrigenomics. So this is about choosing the foods that are optimal, particularly to activate positive genes or not activate suboptimal genes. Okay. Then you look at your gut bio. Oftentimes you may have your calories on, and I see this a lot. Someone's very disciplined. They've figured out their goals. They got their calories and macros. They're eating the right foods for them. In their childhood, they got exposed to massive amounts of uh, antibiotics, or they were exposed to external toxins that damaged their gut biome. So even though they're eating the right diet for them, they've selected everything that's right. It's not working. They don't have the bacteria because we have way more genes inside the bacteria cultures than we do in humans. So we have like 3 million genes of bacteria cultures and like 22,000 for human organisms. And what we've learned in our lab in Bosnia, this is phenomenal. Like these bacteria, when you feed different bacteria, different types of food, they produce a vast array of different things. So we're not really feeding ourselves. We're feeding the bacteria and then the bacteria manufacture either the energy units or the building blocks or the neurotransmitters or the antioxidants that are required for health. Sometimes also the toxic compounds like some gut bacteria can contribute to TMAO as an example from meat, which might be cancer promoting. So there's a lot of interesting things. One thing you mentioned, nutrigenomics, like if we step a little bit back, there is a lot of optimization going on in terms of methylation, obviously MTHFR, but there is also things about histamine tolerance. So one of the kind of dietary things that has come out of research is the Mediterranean diet, that it's supposedly one of the best diets, but there's people who have histamine metabolism, especially related to HNMT and DAO which are responsible for histamine degradation. If you have any problems there, you're not breaking down histamine, that contributes to a lot of different things in the, not just in terms of inflammation, but also in the cardiovascular system, in the central nervous system, in the respiratory system. Like there's all these things. And if you look at the Mediterranean diet, if you like tomatoes, for example, or some of the tapas like salami, cheese, red wine, as an example, are very high histamine foods. So someone like that, the Mediterranean diet is, is suboptimal. Like you could like actually like then decide to eliminate some histamine contributing foods and bring some other things in without compromising the dietary goals in terms of health. So that's just an example of what one could learn from from genomics, especially when it comes to nutrition. Yeah. And it's interesting, people who have a high amount of Mediterranean genes oftentimes don't do very well on fasting, which is very interesting as well, because there's always been abundance of food in the Mediterranean particularly. So those are very interesting. Supplements. Now, we put supplements next over gut biome, because really, what is the role of supplements? Supplements, I believe, are to deal with two particular areas. Whatever that diet that you're choosing that fits right for you, that feels good on, that you're not able to provide within that dietary strategy, or to take in supplements because you have suboptimal absorption pathways for that particular vitamin or mineral. And that's your foundational aspect. Then you can get into kind of like performance supplements like creatine, for example. No one died of a creatine deficiency, but there's many people who received a benefit from taking creatine supplements, both in cognitive health or in sports performance. So these are there's a, a branch of supplementation, which I think first you want to address, what are you not getting or not able to absorb sufficiently? Second, what is your diet not providing if you this is a chosen diet? And then third, what is the performance enhancing? So you can categorize them into three different areas. Yeah. For example, with creatine, like I have genetics that results in elevated creatinine levels. So my kidney load is naturally a little bit higher, so I need to be a bit more careful with, let's say, high-protein diets or 
maybe even supplementing creatine. But yeah, I haven't had like huge issues with that, but it's not like my particular go-to supplement for cognitive performance, for example, although there's great studies on it. Just because of the genetics, I decided to cut down a little bit on the... Yeah, and that's the problem with when you're looking at most of the research is it's not the research candidates are not categorized by their genetic variants. It's just whoever was able to show up at the lab. So you don't know the specifics and that's going to skew the data. I'll give you a great example of that. There was a study on the Pima Indians who had horrific blood sugar response in the body and they added just magnesium to the diet, which optimized their blood sugar regulation. Now, there's lots of people that have blood sugar dysregulation in the that magnesium may affect it or may not affect it, but it would not have the same effect that it did on these peas. For whatever reason, the magnesium in their particular genetics worked excessively well, disproportionately well in managing blood sugar. So you actually touched on the next piece in the pyramid already, which is food allergies and sensitivities. So if you eat a food for an extended period of time, oftentimes you will develop a sensitivity or an aversion to it, or you may have your unique biology may be more sensitive to some products over others. And we'll notice that we'll see this in families a lot. One family member will eat gluten-based products, let's say, and have absolutely no problem with it at all. Fine. They have a croissant in the morning. They have a sandwich at lunch. They're eating a cake after the things and they feel fine. And their partner smells the bread cooking and has an inflammatory response because they're so gluten sensitive. I think a lot of biohackers have that kind of psychosomatic response to just the idea of having gluten somewhere. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, yeah. And it's, and the gluten sensitivity runs from two things. One is, the most people don't produce dipeptidyl peptidase 4, which breaks down gluten. And then the other piece that is adjacent to gluten is Roundup. Let's just call it what it is a chemical additive that is on a lot of gluten, which is extremely disruptive for the microbiome. So sometimes it's hard to separate the gluten response through the glyphosate response. My understanding also is that it's not necessarily always. Even gluten, it might be gliadin. So there might be like something, some other things in it that is not gluten that you should be worried about. That's why testing is so important that you're like, you know what you're talking about, right? Yeah. For example, we do a product P3OM and in our lab settings, and there's another probiotic strain we'll be talking about in the very near future. It just eats up all the gluten. It just destroys it and, and it'll wipe out glyphosate. So I've I, I have, when I do my Cyrex test, so you do a or Cyrex, I've eaten mostly plants. And when I travel, you don't always get organic or biodiverse. So I'm going to get exposed to a certain amount of chemicals and stuff. I have absolutely no glyphosates inside of my system and I have suboptimal detoxification pathways. So I like to do saunas. I like to do, I do an, I have a HOPAT machine where I do ozone therapy, detoxification. I do very well. Fasting is very, all, all of these things that detoxify me, I do very well on, and I can not eat for extended period of times and feel great where other people don't. But that's because my unique body needs extra assistance and detoxification than someone else who has excellent detoxification pathways. Yeah. One of the best products that I used repeatedly, you mentioned the, the probiotics, but one of the enzymes I use is Gluten Guardian from Biotimizers. So that's a good bypass if you want to have a piece of bread and have a piece of also at the same time. It just takes some gluten guardian. If anyone wants to get some, like we are a distributor of bioptimizers and you can get your gluten guardian from microcenter.com. But it's an excellent product. It's something that I feel very good with if I travel and or if I go to a restaurant. I'm not like a purist, like a fundamentalist, and I'm not going to eat something because of my not my allergies, but my dietary choices. If, a, if the chef has prepared something amazing, I'll have it. But then I can pop in a gluten guardian and it's fine. That's exactly how, and that's one of the things that supplementing for dietary experimentation is a great way. So how do you manage your gut health? The final piece, and this is the most important part, and it's, we call it lifestyle. This is what is going to allow you to sustain your health, your vitality, your fitness levels, your cognitive health, whatever your primary focus of your values is at a given time in your life. And that's going to change over the course of your life. 
when you're a kid, you just want as much fuel, whatever you can to keep fueling you on your bicycle or running around. Thing. As you become a young adult, most people are attracted into aesthetics or athletic performance. Then as you get into your middle age, you're like, okay, I need like hormone optimization and I need enough energy that I can maintain my function. And then as you get older, it's often cognitive health and longevity that are become the primary focuses. You don't care if you can run a marathon, you just want to be able to go up and down the stairs or you want to be able to not pass out if you have a, some carbohydrates in your diet because your blood sugar went out of control. There's two interesting supplements you guys have. One is cognitive biotics, which is basically probiotics for cognitive performance and health. And then there is also CAPEX, which is more like an enzyme. I think it's for ketogenic diet. So when people eat a lot of fats, so it helps you to metabolize that. I think it's smart to have that kind of nutritional support from supplements to get the most out of the food that you're eating. Exactly. You know, Apex, for example, that was developed because when I tried a ketogenic diet, if I ate a certain, like once my fat got a certain point, I would start to see fat in the stool. And I didn't know at the time that my genetics were suboptimal for fat metabolism. When Matt did his research and realized, oh, there's four different types of lipase and I was lacking in some of them. So he built that product in experimentation to increase my fat intake. And I increased my fat intake and didn't get the fat. And so I was actually digesting that. Now, in the end, it didn't feel optimal for me, but I was able to, if I was to choose that diet, I could function quite well on that diet if I supplemented correctly. So that was one thing that he helped prove. And this is where the exposing yourself to other dietary ideologies can help you refine your own and expose your paradigm blindness. And that's why I'm excited to go to the biohacking summit. The event in Amsterdam is coming out. What's it, the October 13th or 14th? So I think it's something around there. 14 and 15, yeah, 14 and 15. We're asking them. Yeah, I'm super excited because in that group, there is probably the most sophisticated dietary strategist in the world are going to be there. And you get exposed to concepts and ideas that I wouldn't normally get exposed to, technologies I wouldn't get normally exposed to. And this expands the range of possibility because our goal is to live healthily to 100 and beyond. If we look in the 1960s, life expectancy was around 67. We made it to about 80. Now it's on the decline in Western countries with medical air being the fourth leading cause. So medical intervention for acute care has extended life expectancy for the general population. But now the over-reliance on it is the building. So the biohacking community, I believe, is well poised to extend longevity and quality of life simultaneously. You might end up like Paul Bragg that dies in a surfing accident in his 90s. Okay, that's a cool idea to go, okay, I died in a surfing accident in his 90s, not a fall down the stairs because I don't have enough muscle mass on my leg to break. We can't always know when we're going to die, just that we will, but we might be able to extend the quality of life. And of course, our contribution to society is all in the biohacking conferences is going to be the best place to be there to get exposed to this. And that's why I'm so excited to go over there this year. Exactly. Is there any other supplementation strategies that we haven't touched base yet that are interesting and intriguing for people to maybe know about. We spoke about gluten, we spoke about keto, we spoke about different dietary strategies around probiotics, but like, is there anything like other cool that comes out of your lab that people should know about? For cognitive health, if we touched a little bit on that, about 95% of your serotonin is made in your gut. And most people, and we can't treat any medical conditions, that are getting treatments for low serotonin levels, invariably, will find relief if they straighten out their diet and they start supplementing with the right bacteria cultures that produce serotonin. As someone who wants to go down that route, get a qualified naturopathic doctor to look at all of your pathways. And the implementation of psilocybin in microdosing under the guidance of a naturopathic doctor in combination with supplementing of diet and, and the right dietary adjuncts, we've seen people actually come off anxiety and depression medication by correcting their diet and weaning off the drugs sufficiently using things like psilocybin and probiotics. Considering the large amount of people who are suffering from depression, cognitive health, anxiety issues worldwide, 
I think that's a very big focus. Also, the use of plant medicines, people who are dependent on, you know, who become dependent on drugs, for example, they can use plant medicines. Gabor Mate's work on that is particularly exciting about using uh, traditional plant medicines or neurofeedback, which is a technology. So my girlfriend, she's being published in the Journal of Psychology for demonstrating that neurofeedback is producing better results than cognitive behavior therapy in the treatment of a variety of conditions. And she's now taking that to plant medicine to do a comparison analysis of plant medicine, cognitive behavior therapy, and neurofeedback through studying people who've been doing plant medicines in the Amazon for multiple generations and their ability to interact different. And of course, with these medicines, oftentimes you're also adding a vast array of these microbiome cultures that we that don't we don't even know exist anymore. They've been weeded out of the civilized world. So there's a just a tremendous amount of opportunities in the field right now that are exploding. There's a lot of money going into research now around it. So I think it's the most exciting time. Of course, some of the things I'm doing, I like methylene blue, particularly. I don't like it as the trochee. I like it particularly by doing it IV or nasal, nasally. I like NAD uh, through IV and various, for cognitive enhancement, I use various peptides also delivered IV-wise. And also fast vitamins, I, I like IV as well, because for me, B12 is suboptimal on a plant-based diet. So I, I get regular B12 IVs, yeah. You mentioned psilocybin. So what I find interesting about these are nutritional strategies that enhance neuroplasticity and increase neural growth factors. So there are foods, lion's mane has been promoted us, and there is the whole stamate stack with combination of psilocybin and lion's mane and some other things for inducing neural growth factors. And often someone who has depression, anxiety, there's a good amount of brain atrophy potentially present. So anything that really helps to regrow back that neural tissue will help whatever nutritional strategies you're having to reintroduce myelination and just improve the, you mentioned B vitamins, but there's a lot of minerals and other things that go also into it too. And omega-3 oils, like most of our prefrontal cortex made of omega-3. So there's a lot of nutritional strategies you can do, support your brain. And another component is of course, like reduction of neural inflammation. So there is a lot of things that you can do there. One of my own kind of go-to things that I really like is Alcar, Osteo-L-Carnitine, that has been studied for brain injury, recovery, and all of this. But if you are you're sleep-deprived or something, I feel really great if I take some Osteo-L-Carnitine or Alcar. So there's a lot of nutritional strategies for supporting brain function, which is beyond muscle building or longevity and all of that. It's just making sure your organs are, including your brain, which is quite important, obviously that it's running optimally and we can find new strategies for these things where, yeah, you mentioned talk therapy is not necessarily the answer. Your feedback might be or any other method or form that induces neuroplasticity and even exercise could be treatment for depression, right? So probably one of the most effective ones. So that also induces neural growth factors as an example. I think the kind of modern lifestyle, sedentary lifestyle the lack of recovery that we have, the excess amount of stress, it requires advanced supplementation and dietary strategies in order to maintain a well-functioning system. Isn't it right? Yeah. So civilization has now become a biological stressor. So we look at, I always look at it, evolution is the processes of overcoming environmental stressors. And I believe biohacking is the methodology that humans are developing from a conscious perspective to overcome the disadvantages of a highly technologically advanced society. So it's the evolutionary pressure of technology, which technology alleviated some of those pressures, now become its own pressure and biohacking and the consciousness of that, I think, is emerging as a way to overcome that and will become, maybe they'll talk about that, oh, there was the biohacking era, like there was the agricultural era or the paleo era or whatever. Maybe the 12,000 years from now or something, they'll say, oh, this is the biohacking era. <laughs> Who knows? I really hope so. I really hope so. And 
in Amsterdam, we have these indigenous people. These people have had plant medicines part of their tradition for thousands of years. They are there present. And somehow, like innately, I feel like there's so much wisdom and knowledge that we can learn from them, even though we have the latest, coolest molecules and bugs and devices and technologies and all the fun toys. They have like no idea about what those are even and what they do. And you say NAD to them and they like just stare you blindly into infinity. Like, what is that? They are much more connected to nature and the way they work with it. And they seem to live quite long in ideal conditions. And But there's no one strategy, right? The indigenous people had their own strategies and they were just more in tune with their environments. And when we are out of tune with the environment, we need biohacking to be reintroduced into our lives so that we can live more in tune and more in harmony with what our biology is designed for. It's kind of a different approach to it, but yeah, it's this disconnect that culture and civilization has created in our bodies uh, and in our minds also. For example, one idea here is that if you think of Tesco and any kind of mass Walmart like supermarkets, they pretty much are the filters of what is edible and what is not for most people. Many people are completely disconnected of food in terms of like hunting, foraging, connecting directly to the food, learning what to eat, what not. They can't use their taste or smell or anything to figure out what is edible and what is good quality or what not. It's dictated by these intermediaries that filter out all these things to us. And frankly, they actually do destroy our gut microbiomes and our health in the process. As biohackers, we have to become aware of what those intermediaries are doing and also optimize what's coming from there. So we reduce the harm and the effect that comes from modern food chains and awareness of hormone disruptors and what whatever antibiotics that leak into our food. So yeah, that's where all the supplements come in. That's where all the different techniques come in to reduce the damage that could happen with modern lifestyles. But how much do you think it's about this kind of paleo reconnecting to ancestral? How much we need to have like food that comes from the future in a sense that is connected to new technology and new discoveries. And you mentioned you're using peptides and all that. Like how much do we really need that stuff which is even modified with modern technology? A great question. And I don't think we'll be able to answer that question for the next few hundred years. What I would say is this, I'm of the belief that we're so deeply down the technological disruption of our natural environments, that the only way back to that is through technology. In other words, we've already stepped beyond that bound. If we look at the monocultural production of food, we don't know exactly how much we've depleted all of the food sources that we currently have. So you could eat a perfectly, say, paleocentric or raw food diet, or kind of like you could have a perfect diet within the strategy that you're putting and still end up with some sort of deficiency or uh, deterioration effect because the elements may not be present that were present in that food before. Just like we don't have certain microbiome strains that we had in indigenous times aren't present in modern times. So I think it's a combination of strategically using both. Yeah, I think a good thing to add here is people are afraid of GMO food, like gene manipulated things. But most of the crops, the monocrops that we eat are actually gene manipulated, not by lab work, but by selective breeding through a couple of centuries. So 60% of world energy intake comes from 10 plants. And most of those are far-fetched from their original ancestral plants. If you think of like wheat or you think of manioc or rice or corn, etc., even potatoes, those have been selectively bred by farmers to have much more carbohydrates and energy and less nutrients, less toxic chemicals also, to a degree where things like bananas can reproduce without human interventions. Bananas and avocados and all of these things are pretty stable foods that people consume. When we think of gene manipulation, we have actually done that like for most of modern times through agriculture. Yes, which essentially then I think at the highest level you become, you end up right at the bottom of the pyramid, which is the consciousness itself and the application of who am I, what am I, and where am I going? And I guess if you get to a place of peace and center, you're okay with everything. 
is fine because everything is an aspect of myself. This is just an ongoing evolutionary process through infinity. And I think that developing an, an overt fear-based perspective, I think is suboptimal. I think being a naive person to the detrimental effects of some of these things is also suboptimal. So somewhere you've got to be able to find the balance and apply it specifically at a given time and remain flexible in your views so that you can integrate the right thing at the right time in the appropriate amount and let go of the wrong thing the right time in the appropriate amount. And I think if you do that, the quality of your life, the happiness that you experience, your ability to integrate socially in virtually any circumstance is going to lead to a happy and peaceful life. I know we only touched on a few of the things in the book, but thanks for letting us go through those nutritional decision pyramids. I think it's a good start. The chapter, the book's huge. It's how to be successful on any diet, how to apply biohacking technology, various dietary strategies, and various goals and outcomes. And I think it'll be a reference guide for many people for a long time. To be, And my hope and Matt's hope is that we create more of these type of dialogues where it's not a point of, I want to attack what I think is a liability within something else. It's about, I want to integrate the optimal pieces of what that person has learned or developed or cultured and see how that may enhance my own well-being or my own health or towards my own goals. And I think that's the way that you guys advocate at the biohacking events. And so I'm looking forward to going there and sharing this with as many people as possible and get their opinions and feedback and suggestions. Beautifully concentrated the ultimate nutrition bible easily create the perfect diet that fits your lifestyle goals and genetics is out from random penguin house and it's available for example on amazon so in kindle and audiobook and hardcover form i can't wait personally to dive into this massive bible of over 550 pages it looks great so with that i can't wait to hear your keynote presentation in Amsterdam and dive into this book, obviously, to figure out what I can do to live in a more smart or more conscious way when it comes to my relationship with food. And I think that's what is happening now in terms of evolution, in dietary evolution and understanding, especially in the biohacking field. So I, like you, I have also observed in the last decade, people going from one diet to another and dogma to another. And it's been quite a ride of repurposing and refiguring out what is good for you. And in the end, there is no single perfect diet that will work for everyone. Everyone needs to figure that out themselves. And what has happened in the last 10 years, our biological testing has become cheaper and more accurate and more refined to the level where people have access to, for example, genetic information that was super expensive just a few years ago. So now it is accessible and we can use that to develop a smarter, more conscious, more aware and deeper understanding of what's on our plates and how that affects me and how that kind of integrates as part of my lifestyle, whatever I'm doing. And also understanding that we go through different cycles in our own life as well, in terms of decades of your life, in terms of your goals. Maybe sometimes it's more about the work that you do with your brain and sometimes it's more about your body and something in between. Sometimes you challenge yourself and sometimes you just want to keep your machine running as long as possible, as healthy as possible. Sometimes you are recovering from disease or physical or even emotional trauma. So we have to figure out what are the dietary strategies that would optimally support that. And that's the kind of intelligence that has been lacking, I would say, from mainstream nutritional advice for decades. And I think it's about time that we bring that back in, bring some tuning back in, some resonance back into the system that we have lost as a civilization, where we have completely disconnected food in, in terms of a relationship with our environment, just calories and just energy that you need. It's time to understand what that relationship could ultimately be, where indigenous people they saw plant spirits, they saw those as teachers and all that. Now we have to figure out modern technological approaches and technological solutions in terms of seeing those as technology. So nutrition is technology 
that interacts with the technology of your body and like how do you work with the interfaces in the ideal way i guess that's one way to concentrate some of that awesome if people want to know more about weight lightheart's work so bioptimizers.com obviously is awesome line of products that i've been using for a long time the ultimate nutrition bible is available on amazon is there any other links or accounts to follow yeah, that's pretty good. We're on social media and all those channels that our social media team handles. So if you're an Instagram person or a Facebook person or whatever, you can just look up bio-optimizers on that. And, and we also have a bio-tribe of people who are in the experimental phase and are sharing some of their insights in a kind of a proactive community that is not dietary dogmatic. We're experimenters and biohackers and we test new products and new theories and new ideas. So some people would like to get ahead of the curve and be part of their research it's a great place to hang out and uh, share stories and make new friends. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Wade Lightheart, for this interview and looking forward to seeing you next time in Amsterdam. Thank you so much. <laughs>